0: Oh, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking state. about yeah. We're time not even lesbianism. So, we not not. This is a WLRN extended interview.
1: Hi, my name is Otep Shamaya. I am the vocalist and namesake for the band Otep.
0: How or when did you first get involved with music?
1: It was right around the end of 2001, uh, my friend and I snuck into a show at a festival. And we saw this band playing and they were just horrible. (laughs) They were just really just awful. And yet they were on the stage that, you know, most other bands would covet, you know, to have. They would just be so honored to play. And these guys were drunk and they were insulting their audience. and, And they didn't seem like any of the members of the group were playing the same song at the same time. I think somebody mixed up their uh, their lineup schedule. And um, I just looked at my friend and I said, uh, these guys are pretty awful. And he's like, yeah, they're pretty terrible. I'm like, well, I can be that terrible. <laughs> so I was like, I'll try to start a band. So it was just kind of a whim, really. I was more of a um, an illustrator and a writer at the time. Uh, But that's what took up most of my creative energy. And then uh, we came back to L.A., and I just put out some feelers for some auditions and uh, started the band, and we got signed after four shows here in Los Angeles, playing the Sunset Strip just as a local band, loading our gear and loading our gear. We had an A&R by the name of Ron Lafitte. He worked for Capitol Records, and he'd come in to see one of our shows at the Viper Room which used to be owned by Johnny Depp and, and is sort of inf- infamously known uh, as the place where uh, River Phoenix overdosed. Um, so it's, it's kind of an eerie place to play, uh, rather small, and we probably had 30 to 50 people there tops, and we were just one of the openers. And um, he said as he was walking up the stairs, he could hear the music, and he said he was going to sign whoever owned that voice, and that voice belonged to me. Uh, he asked us how many songs we had. I told him we had 11. We only had five. <laughs> 11 sounded like the right number. because I knew nothing about music at all. I really didn't. And then we went into the studio and started writing and recording, and I guess our seventh or eighth show as a band was on AusFest in front of 25,000 people.
0: Wow. So you went from not having any musical background whatsoever to playing in front of 25,000 people.
1: Yeah. (laughs) There was a burden on us. You know, I could feel it. You know, heavy is the head that wears the crown. There was this chanting, because we were actually playing in Illinois as direct support for a band called Mudvayne, and they were really hot at the time, and Illinois is their home state, so everybody was there to see them play. Uh, I remember my guitarist at the time. I've gone through several, so, uh, but this was one of the one of the first. When he looked out at the crowd, he just ran back into the dressing room and got sick. <laughs> and I told him, I was like, dude, just close your eyes and pretend it's fifty people, just like we always do. You know, like just like we plays. You know, just play the songs. I was the first woman to play Ozfest. And so nobody knew us and they saw this, a girl with a microphone and I could I could hear the jeers and I could hear some snickers and like giggling and stuff. But then just as soon as the music hit, the whole place just erupted and uh, the rest has kind of been history.
0: <laughs> so what is it like in the metal
1: scene? I think that as a genre, metal has become so exclusive. And so a band like mine, if you talk to a metal purist, they would tell you that OTEP is not metal, We that they are new metal or that they are a hard rock band. They're not a metal band. Uh, when I wanted to start the band, I, I based it on what I understood how The Doors built their band. Every member had a different background musically. One was a jazz player. Uh, one was a blues player, uh, the drummer was like a samba guy, and then you had Jim Morrison who was a a blues and poetry guy and psychedelic guy of course. I wanted to build the band around around that and about bringing in different influences and being more of a fusion band. So we use everything that we love about music and everything that inspires us about music. So there's a little punk, there's a little hip hop, there's a little grunge, there's a little metal, there's uh, there's a little poetry. Uh, there's a lot of politics, of course. In the beginning, it was really difficult, just because people didn't expect me to just want to be recognized for my music and my message, versus getting on stage and being a Vegas act where I'm like showing off my body and and trying to get record sales through that sort of method, and and. Some people do it, and that's you know that's good for them, and they can do whatever they want, but that's not ever what i that's not whatever I want. I never wanted that. I always wanted to be judged based on the merit of my work and the quality of my lyrics and the quality of my performance and the clarity of my message. Do you feel as though
0: there is a pressure to
1: sell your music with your body as some other artists do? I think there's an expectation of it. And I eagerly let them down. <laughs> I, I still take my job very professionally, and I make sure that what I wear, I feel like, uh, looks good on stage, is comfortable on stage, and, and uh, you know, I still do my hair and all the things that you're supposed to do for a performance. I'm not just waking up and walking out on stage or whatever. But for me, the first thing that should be leading your, uh, your band should not be the fact that, you know, uh, you have a bosom you know <laughs> like it shouldn't be that it it should be it should be about what you say and you should have something to say and that's one of the things that irks me quite a bit is that I don't like singers that don't have a real message uh that they just sort of repackage things they've already said or things someone else has already said for me it's because I don't really ever get to know the singer I don't get to understand who they are or maybe that is who they are then I I wouldn't like them, <laughs> but I think that as a singer, it's important to have a message, and and um, it should be a reflection of what's going on, either with you personally or what's going on in society. Especially now, there's a never-ending cascade of uh, work to be inspired from. You know.
0: Have you faced many challenges in? the music scene as a woman or, or as an out lesbian?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. You don't have to take my word for it. Just look at festivals or play around the country and just check to see how many female-funded bands are on these festivals. There's very few. And if they are, they're usually the same bands. There is a, um, a bit of a bias in some ways. And I think that may just be due to old stereotypes or old prejudices or old, you know, uh, biases that um, women can't perform or bring down the house the same way that a a male-fronted band can. And that's not been my experience. Whenever I headline, I always look to try to take out a female-fronted band, at least one, to give them the opportunity to perform and to play in front of my audience and who are the most. Dedicated and passionate people on the planet. I, I am always so inspired by our fans and supporters. And they normally, or typically, they will embrace the bands that we bring on tour with them, thus giving them a bit of our fan base. And and not to diminish it to a commodity, but that is something that's very special about what we do. So um, a lot of bands want to tour with us. But... um I've had issues with promoters who want to go and party with me after the shows or want to, um, uh, you know, one guy asked me to go to his house and sit in a hot tub with him and, you know, things like that. He worked for a radio station uh, because once I'm done with a show, I need, well, I guess what happens to me during a show is a very visceral, very real experience. Every emotion that caused me to write the songs that I'm performing i'm reliving and re-experiencing on stage so for me after a show i need some self-care i need to be able to go back and just get ready for the next show because we play a lot of shows in a row so i need to clear my mind get myself you know re-centered and play and, and a lot of times i think people see that as um I, I don't know i'm a party pooper or a debbie downer or something like that and and um, and as far as being an out lesbian, that's been a big deal as well because I was very outspoken about it in the past and was told that I was going to be blacklisted in the industry and they were trying to get my agents to drop me. They're a company that helps to build some of these festivals, and one of the owners' father is a insane conservative talk show host, and he had said that gay people deserve a Um, that we're all pedophiles, uh, that we should just be left to die. And uh, I spoke out about that because people were asking why we weren't on certain festivals. And then you see one of their, their advertisers is this group that's connected to this other human being, I suppose. And it's hard because it's not like I can go to a gay pride parade, you know, and play our music because it's typically a little too aggressive for what's going on at gay pride. The, the good thing is, over the years, we've built a really nice community of inclusivity for the LGBT community, and uh, we see them more and more coming to our shows. But in the beginning, it was pretty tough, because I never hid who I was. So, you know, I got I got called all the names you could think of, and at first it bothered me quite a bit, uh, and then after that, it, it just stopped, because it's like, you can only call me a dyke you know. A handful of times before the, the word is meaningless or you can call me whatever and before that word just doesn't have any meaning to me anymore. And so I challenge people who who will attack me to come up with better insults. <laughs> Give me something to work with, people. And I think just what we saw recently with uh, Equal Pay Day, it's not just music that women are faced with with not being treated equally for either being just as talented or more talented or just as experienced or even more experienced or just as educated or more educated in this country, and yet they still make uh, less than men simply because of nothing more than biology. Ovaries versus gonads.
0: (laughs) Speaking of women... Are there any women musicians or women
1: rockers
0: who you look up to?
1: In my formative years, I was a huge fan of Courtney Love and Lauryn Hill, but we've got some great friends that we've made along the way who've been openers for us or toured with us. Or well, I've just become acquaintance with Lizzie Hale from Halestorm; is a good friend of mine. Uh, Kim from uh, One Eye Doll is fantastic. So we've, we've met some really really great people and some really remarkable musicians and again they don't get the kind of notoriety that they should again because there's no other reason why they shouldn't other than the fact that there's a bias against them. On the new record which I co-produced with my guitar player Aristotle for the first time we've ever produced the record on our own and it was quite liberating and a little more difficult because we had a lot more responsibility. <laughs> and, you know, when you're uh, trying to be a feral artist and let instinct and improvisation and the muses sing through you, you'll also be able to have to bifurcate into also being the administrative bosses. It took us about a week to get grounded into that sort of formation, but we did it. But um, on this record, one of the songs is asking people to challenge gender norms uh, on you know, what we're supposed to do as far as, I mean, who makes these rules, who makes these rigid identities that we're all supposed to adhere to? Who does that? And why are they so important? I believe that somewhat it has to do with control. My favorite quotes from the author and activist James Baldwin, he was friends with Malcolm X, he was friends with Medgar and he was friends with Martin Luther King, all three of whom were assassinated. He wrote, uh, there's this great documentary, and there's a book called I Am Not Your Negro. He says in this interview, and I think he's talking to some either some Harvard kids or some Oxford kids, but he's doing a discussion, and he said, I am not uh, the n-word. I'm a man. America invented the n-word. And America needs to look at itself in the face why it needs the n-word, why it needs an n-word. And I look at the same way with gay people and why it is that they need to diminish us to a blight, to a slur. Why is that something that makes you feel superior? Why do you need to feel superior to someone that you don't even know? Simply because for some reason you don't like the way gay people are, you know, that we date the same sex. Uh, They'll pull out the Bible and they'll throw Leviticus at me which is the chapter that says, you know, man shall not lie with another man as he does a woman, which I think, again, if you actually read that statement, it's misogynistic. It's not homophobic. It's not saying men shouldn't have sex with other men. It just says men shouldn't have sex with other men as they do a woman. So one of you, don't be the lady. Like, you know, don't have sex the way you have sex with a woman. Um, it doesn't say don't have sex with another man. It just says don't lie with another man as you would a woman. Um, but also in Leviticus, it says men shouldn't shave their beards. It said they shouldn't cut their hair. They shouldn't wear a um, multi-fabric blend. So when people throw, oh, you're an abomination to God, it's in the Bible. Leviticus wrote it. I said, well, after Sunday school or after church, are you going to hit the sizzler? You know, are you having the shrimp and steak combination? Because if you are... You're an abomination to God. It's in the same chapter. And the fact that they pick and choose and cherry pick which things to say what is right and what is wrong. I mean, anybody right now, if you walked up to them and said, God said, you cannot wear that polo shirt because uh, it's a multi-fabric blend. It's polyester cotton. And they would would be like, what are you talking about? You're insane. It's like, oh, it's right here. It's in the book. You believe. Like, yeah, but, you know, that was written a long time ago, and we don't really pay attention to that. And you say, oh, but what about the gay thing? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's real. (laughs) It's becoming more and more acceptable, I think, just uh, across the board in entertainment and music to being uh, openly gay. Still, you have, you know, gay people finding their authentic selves later in life. That's why a lot of gay people have late-in-life first loves. And um, sometimes it can be a bit more devastating as an adult, because you haven't had that time emotionally as you would, if you were a child and were able to have the first love and the breakup and then develop, you know, ways to process that, that, that heartbreak and that uh, all of that emotion when it happens to you when you're an adult, it's uh, sometimes it's even harder because you've never really faced that kind of loss before. So sometimes it feels like grieving. Sometimes it. It feels, um, you know, a hundred times worse than it would if you were 12 or 13 or 14, Um, just because emotionally, you don't have the emotional architecture for that sort of endeavor.
0: Absolutely. If this is too personal, please forgive me, but do you have that kind of experience? Because, I mean, that is a very common thing, a late-in-life love.
1: My first real... I mean, I, I had... Infatuations when I was a child I thought a girl was pretty And she had beautiful eyelashes And all that Or, or I had like crushes on girls uh, Growing up and the same thing And some of them were openly Straight but then would be With me after Class or we'd be down in the locker room Hanging out just you know Just talking and giggling And doing what teenagers do Or But as far as me actually being able To live out loud to be open and free was yeah that happened um when i was when i was an adult a young adult and um it was a really it it was a tough really really difficult experience to endure because i again it was like it was like grieving it was like losing someone forever but the difference is is that they were they were still walking around the planet they weren't you know I didn't die or whatever that normal grief is associated with. For me, that was that was um, that was a real tough time. But I learned from it, and I still make bad choices sometimes. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I'm working on it. That's
0: honestly amazing to hear about. Thank you for sharing. Oh sure, no problem. Do you draw inspiration from your? own life experiences? I mean, like, what is your writing process like?
1: I'm constantly writing. I'm, I'm, I would be diagnosed specifically for hypergraphia, but I do tend to write quite a bit. And uh, I'll fill up, you know, notebooks left and right. So whenever I go into the studio to write a song, for whatever reason, my process is kind of eccentric. I'll write the first verse, in one book and I'll write the second verse in another book. And then I tear out all the pages and put them around me and it becomes sort of like a, like a a puzzle that I've got to put together. But most of what I've written about in my career is, has been uh, either personal experiences or things that have happened in the world that have affected me in such a way that I, I thought that they needed attention. Like on the last record, we had a song called On the Shore which was about that little three-year-old boy who drowned in his father's arms when they were trying to seek refuge from the war and their boat capsized and he couldn't hold his son up. And the next morning they found him and it looked like he was asleep, like normal baby sleep with his head down and his his butt in the air, Uh, but he had passed. And I just, I know how it seems like our country is these days. It used to be the seven-second generation. We had a tension span of seven seconds, and now we're down to about three. I didn't want anybody to forget what had happened there and the humanitarian crisis that's going on over there and that how that could have all been solved had the Russians not involved themselves in our election and had not the races poured out from underneath the, the rocks to uh, vote for the orange wannabe Mussolini. Uh, a Cheeto Nixon may be a better term, but I think he's actually surpassed Nixon as being the most crooked and corrupt president we've ever had. And that's saying a lot. And then also being the dumbest president that we've ever had. And that's saying a lot, too, considering we had George W. Bush. I know that George W. Bush is probably wiping his brow and wiping a tear out of his eye going, thank you. I'm no longer the dumbest president that we've ever had. Uh, you know, that. That moniker now lies in the strange and odd lap of a uh, 71-year-old pre-dementia reality TV star who was elected due to Russian involvement and, of course, the morons that wanted to see an orange man in the White House. Yeah, sorry, what was the question? I, I ran it off on Trump. I apologize. <laughs> That's totally okay. I understand the fire. Oh, I, got, I could go on for hours. I hate the guy so much. I've never hated anybody I've never met. You know, you can read in history and you can read about horrible leaders and, and nations who've done terrible, terrible things. And you're like, that was a terrible person and they deserved everything they got. I actually despise, maybe this is because I, I love my country so much. I, I literally resent and despise this human being. And hopefully, all of his crimes and, and, uh, uh, corruption will be brought to light very soon. This will just be a, a page in, in the history, and it'll be like when people ask, where were you on 9-11? It'll be like, where were you when Trump was uh, impeached or, or resigned or whatever he's going to do? But anyway, sorry, what was the question again? <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's okay.
1: The, the question was, where do you find inspiration. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, it's usually it's something that's either happened to me or happened to somebody else. This album is dedicated not only to shed light on the truth of the corrupt Cheeto Nixon, but also his followers. A very small tiny bit of followers that the entire conservative and Republican party are terrified of. He only has like a 36% approval rating. What are you scared of? should be afraid of that 70% that that disapproves, but, you know, it's Congress, so I think I'm asking a lot for them to think. <laughs> but even though I'm writing about something that might have happened to me, I try to use universal language so that people can relate or understand or empathize with the experience without actually having to have had that experience. And the same thing goes with politics as well. For example, we wrote a song called Invisible People, and that's about the Dreamers and DACA. You know, that doesn't necessarily apply to me because, uh, you know, my family was an Irish family who came over on the boats. I'm pretty sure they didn't have any documentation. I'm pretty sure they snuck aboard a vessel and got over here across the pond. And at the time, back when we had that influx of Irish, there was signs that would say, no dogs, no Irish, because we were thought of as this, invading force, bringing with us Catholicism and whiskey and (laughs) shillelaghs. And, uh, you know, you can go back and people can Google this and look it up and see just how horrible they segregated the Irish community. For me, I try to relate back to my own family's experience and what they experienced at that time. We were the ones that were being attacked for coming to America. And again, uh, one of the things that bothers me quite a bit is that People who are coming to this country or when they used to come to this country, they would always come in and they would be looking for the Statue of Liberty, the symbol of freedom, the symbol of of equality, of this potential of equality, which is what America is based on. America is not a monarchy. You know, we don't pass a crown down to the next person. It's based on an idea, an idea that all are created equal and all deserve the life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And it's such a precious idea that it's not perfect, and we haven't reached our full capacity yet. We haven't even reached our full potential yet. We were moving closer and closer to it, and now it seems like it's further and further away. So I still try to use universal language or provocative language in a way that people who might not be able to understand what being deported feels like. And even though you've lived here your entire life, and you don't even speak the language of your original country, and yet they're going to stick you in this place and say, good luck. Even if you don't know what that feels like, I want to try to give you that experience through universal language and and, uh, imagery.
0: In this writing process, do you ever contact people who have these experiences?
1: They normally contact me. I'll either meet them at shows or... We talk, you know, in direct messages and things. For example, before they approved marriage equality for all people, even though it's still legal in, I think, uh, 16 or 17 states in America to be fired for being gay, perfectly legal, by the way. I believe a Texas court just upheld a a ruling that it is illegal to discriminate against the LGBT community in the workplace. So hopefully it stops there, and we've made one more step towards that promised capacity of equality. But before they made marriage equality the law of the land, thanks Obama, I had people reaching out to me who were engaged to immigrants. Uh, They had met traveling or whatever, and, you know, in a heterosexual coupling. If oh, a man or woman goes overseas and falls in love, they can get married and that person from the other country gets citizenship. But it didn't apply to gay people. I would have long conversations with gay people about that, even soldiers. I mean, it was really tough for a lot of these folks. And so um, I wanted to put that in a song.
0: It sounds like your music is a form of activism that you take a stand through your music?
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah. Nina Simone said it best, and I'm paraphrasing, but she said it's the duty of the artist to reflect our surroundings. It's the duty of the artist to speak our truth as we experience it day by day. And I've tried to live by that. You know, I'll throw in a song and I'll have some fun with it or whatever, throw in a funny line just to keep it, you know, not so serious. I understand not a lot of people want to just sit and listen to political music all the time. So you have to give them diversity. It's like saying, well, do you want to go watch an action flick or do you want to watch a documentary? Now, I'll choose a documentary any day of the week, you know, usually. So it's sort of the same thing, you know, it's like, do you want to listen to an album about what's wrong with this country or would you rather ignore it and listen to some you know, music about getting drunk with your friends and having a good time? And a lot of people will choose that instead. But I'm just motivated more to speak out against what's wrong and try to right these wrongs and uh, not let them be forgotten. Because the people that are committing these sometimes crimes against a certain sect of people or who are opportunists and are taking advantage of the working class, they never stop thinking about it. You know, they're always thinking about how they're going to get that extra dollar, how they're going to get that extra bit of power. Who are they going to step on to get to where they want to go? Those people don't forget it. They live it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so as an artist, even though sometimes I feel like I'm standing alone because there's not that many bands putting out political records these days, uh, even though they should be, I still will scream into the wind and, and not care because I think it's important that someone says something.
0: When you first joined or formed this band, is that your first instance or your first
1: experience with activism? I had attended rallies and things like that, but it was always present in the things that I created before music, which, again, I was mostly an illustrator and a writer. So the things that I wrote about and the things that I I would draw or paint always reflected some form of activism, even if it was just something subtle and hidden within the verse or hidden within the paint or hidden hidden within the brushstroke. It was just important to me to always, yeah, uh, be that way. I think growing up the way that I did, we were very poor, but right across the street was a very affluent neighborhood with gates up and everything, right? We all went to the same schools or we all hung out. And I just remember thinking that, these kids didn't know to appreciate what they had because they were born into it. But just from an education level or an intellectual level, um, I always felt that there wasn't any difference between it. The only thing that divided us was, uh, your family has more money than my family. My mom's working three jobs, your mom works one, or she stays at home. I saw so much untapped potential in my neighborhoods because people were so hopeless because they were poor. There's a lot of easy way out to stop being poor. Not all of them are legal. (laughs) Even the ones that were talented, even the ones that were amazing artists or beautiful singers or just had other talents. And they just felt so hopeless that there was no way out, that it was such a long climb up out of the tunnel that they would just rather accept their place in that environment, It made an imprint on me that if I ever had the chance to have a platform where I could speak for people and hopefully inspire them to realize that just because you're born into a certain side of the railroad tracks or or into a certain ideological family doesn't mean that you can't live your authentic self. It's your life, you know, and you should be able to do what you want with it. And so I think that was ingrained in me. And it wasn't a conscious thing. I wasn't aware of it. Uh, It wasn't until I started doing interviews with people after the band that I started to realize that, oh, yeah, that's that's the reason why I do that. (laughs) Intellectual excavation.
0: Would you say that you are a promoter of feminism?
1: I think being a feminist just means that you're a decent human being. You believe in equality for all people. You believe women are just as equal as men. I have a hard time with people that, you know, there's just like men in this movement that keeps popping up and going away and popping up and going away. And they gave me the, this one group gave me the psychopath of the year award because they said I was a man hater. And I was like, really? Maybe I should call my brothers or my father or my, my bandmates and tell them that I hate them because apparently you figured me out and I had no idea that I disliked men that much. And this goes back to my earlier notation about James Baldwin is that why do you need me as a woman to be inferior to you? Why is that important to you? Uh, And these are just these gender roles that have been inflicted upon us. And the funniest thing about it all is if you break it down scientifically, we don't even talk about culturally because we've come a long way. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, our work is not done. And I think women are rising up and showing that. And um, I don't see how people can justify being a feminist and ignore the fact that mothers regardless of species are suffering needlessly we don't need to drink milk we don't need to eat eggs we don't need to do any of that stuff we're not carnivores we are herbivores it's biological we have long intestines to digest plant matter and and that's why we have such a difficult time digesting meat and most people experience some form of lactose intolerance because we're not supposed to drink another animal's milk. Just talking about feminism and the power of women. If I wanted to say that women were superior, all fetuses begin from a female template. That's the reason why men have nipples. Nipples serve one purpose, to feed young. Men can't feed young, but yet they still have that. So we all began as female in the very beginning. The idea that we all begin as female, I think, is... Is never brought up, it's never taught, and it's not not something that I think the patriarchy wants us to know or realize because, you know, uh, women have the ability to grow life within them. And we just come to expect that because, you know, it's just what happens. You know what I mean? It's quite remarkable when you think about it, what women are capable of doing, what their bodies are capable of doing. So for me, feminism... Doesn't begin and end between species. It is all the same. Uh, I run an animal sanctuary with my with my family. It's a private animal sanctuary where we save uh, livestock from slaughterhouses. We have this one cow. I believe she's right around eleven, and her son is eight, and he's this gigantic, just this huge bull. His mother, every day since he's been born, walks over to him while he's sitting in the grass out in the pasture and she gives him a bath every single day. She knows that's her boy and she goes and she takes care of him even though he's grown and doesn't need mom's help, you know, but that's her boy. That's that's her son. And uh I think that that's important that as feminists we realize that in the animal kingdom, you know, women are female animals are treated worse than male animals and we should include them in our fight for uh, feminism in this nation.
0: You mentioned the female cows are just put back into the system. Same with the chickens. The female chickens are just put back into the system to be breeders. I see a correlation between the way that female animals are treated and the way that female people are treated because just like them, we are brought up in a world where our Quote, unquote, purpose is to birth men, birth males. And girls are socialized from birth to love men and to want to be married. Correct.
1: Well, I mean, if, if anybody doubts that we have a socialization problem in this country, it's the easiest thing you can do is go visit a toy aisle. And you see what toys are for boys. And you see what toys are for girls. And you see the colors they use. And you see, you know, one game for a boy that's about strategy. And then it's the same game for a girl, but it's about dating. Uh, You know, who gets the most popular boy to take her to prom. Globally, we have a problem where, you know, women are meant, they're only meant to breed. They still practice female circumcision in parts of this world. And we're in the 21st century. In Afghanistan, we're five-year-olds are married off to 55-year-old men where they can, can hold on to them so that as soon as they become of age, well when they first start their menses, doesn't mean that they're physically capable of carrying a baby, but the men jump right on it and try to have as many children with those women as possible. I don't want to take away from women who decide that they want to be a housewife. That's their decision. If it's their decision and they're not coaxed to do it, they don't feel like they're forced to do it. It's what they want to do. They just want to be a mom. They want to raise their children and be the positive force in a negative world. Good on them. Bravo. I have no quarrel with you. It's the system that says women are only allowed to be these certain things. A nurse, a secretary, uh, a, a mother, a teacher, which much respect to teachers that's a whole other topic too i believe teachers should be paid the same as nfl players so yeah the idea that we're meant to breed uh, that's all we're meant to do and hopefully especially in other countries breed a male child because women are thought of as unnecessary and weak and yet there's such a long history of advancements that women have helped to push society forward For example, I can give you one. Hatshepsut, in ancient Egypt, her husband, the pharaoh, died. And so she was supposed to take over as queen mother, which means she was supposed to give birth to the next king. And she said, fuck that. I'm going to be pharaoh. So she ruled as pharaoh for, I think, 14 years or so, maybe longer, maybe shorter. Again, you can check that. But she ruled Egypt as pharaoh she wore the beard and she wore the garb and she was respected up until her death and then the pharaoh's son tried to erase her from history he chiseled her face off and put his face on every accomplishment that she had achieved uh, which she brought egypt up to a powerhouse to a, a financial powerhouse and even in the early parts of this country when Uh, We were breaking away from the British and breaking away from Europe as colonies. You know, we all know the story of Paul Revere. The British are coming. The British are coming. But very few people know about the 16-year-old girl who rode twice as far as he did on the same night that he did, alerted more people than he did, and she did this in the middle of the night. And, you know, back in those days, a 16-year-old girl on a horse is pretty dangerous. You know, there's robbers and thieves on the roads, and yet she took it upon herself to grab a horse and wake everybody up so that we could have this country. Those are just two examples. I mean, we can go on and on about even the space program. The one uh, woman, I can't remember her name again, um, but she hand-wrote the code, the computer code, that was going to help us send our astronauts into space. Not many people know her name either. The person who invented Kevlar was a woman. There's so much of our history that has been removed, and I think that's deliberate. It's the same way that, uh, you know, conservatives have been very, very, very focused on removing civics classes out of high schools so that kids grow up and they don't understand how the government works, you know, how a bill is made into a law. Usually what I've found is conservatives are traditionally some of the most fearful people on the planet. They're terrified of anybody that's not like them. And I think that may have a lot to do with the way that they feel about feminism.
0: Well, speaking about feminism, and like you said, the erasure of Hatshepsut, that is a pretty serious act of misogyny, and I would say male violence as well. In current times, we are seeing a lot of lesbian erasure. Somehow the term lesbian is contentious. So how would you define the word lesbian?
1: The word lesbian comes from the Greek island of Lesbos. The reason why that moniker stuck was because of a teacher named Sappho, who uh, lived on the island of Lesbos. She was a teacher of poetry and music, and to prepare young women for marriage, a lot of well-to-do families would send their daughters to Sappho so that they could learn to sing and they could learn to play music for their husband or for celebrations for the gods and all of that. Sappho being a poet, they considered her the 10th muse because she took poetry and instead of it being Homeric, where it's about Ulysses and, you know, uh, these, the the gods and, and these epic adventures, she wrote poetry about some of the students that she fell in love with who would sometimes refuse to leave the island because they loved her back and they grew up there and they stayed with her. And then, so for me it used to be we were called sapphic which I kind of like that I enjoy that term I think it sounds elegant lesbian to me means two women who love each other I've been asked when did I choose to be gay and I say well when did you choose to be straight and then they kind of look at me with this weird face and they say oh well the first time I saw you know a woman with a nice derriere or something and then I'm like well same (laughs) you know Being a lesbian doesn't mean that you're blind to beauty or you're blind to something that's that's well put together. My definition of being a lesbian is a woman who is attracted, sexually attracted, and also affectionately attracted to other women. Homosexuality has existed for as long as humanity has existed. They found graves in prehistoric times where a woman was dressed in armor and uh, you'd usually bury a man... Towards the West, I think, and you bury a woman facing east. And this one woman who was dressed in full uh, like battle regalia was buried facing the same way that a man would be buried. And then they found men who were buried the um, uh, on the side that you would bury a woman, and they were covered with bracelets and flowers. You can go back to the original people of this nation, the uh, uh, Native Americans they had people they called the two-spirit people, which were gay people. And they believed that they had both male and female spirits in them, and that's the way they were able to explain why a woman was attracted to another woman or a man was attracted to another man. And they were also, in, in most tribes, not all, but in most tribes, they were revered and sometimes considered holy. If someone calls me a lesbian, I don't see that as a negative. That's what I am. I know that the word queer is coming back. Some people don't want to be labeled as gay, they don't want to be labeled as lesbian, they want to be labeled as queer. You know, during the civil rights movement, during like the Harvey Milk era, it was a positive thing. It wasn't until after Harvey passed, or was murdered, I'm sorry, let's not sugarcoat that, after he was assassinated, queer became a dirty word, you know, it became a blight, it became a slur. I believe it was in San Francisco, there was a gay bar that burned down, someone had set fire to the bar, and locked the door from the outside, everyone inside perished. Some of the families were so ashamed that their loved ones were gay. that They never even came to claim the bodies. We've had a, a rough go in this country. And luckily, because of gay people standing up and because of our heterosexual allies, we're starting to see more and more acceptance. And that's good because if I don't have the same rights as heterosexuals in this country then why should I be taxed the same as heterosexuals in this country that's taxation without representation that's what started the war of independence
0: it's funny that you bring this up because when we talk about the LGBT community sometimes people add a Q on there I've also seen an I plus sign number two like it's become so many letters that some of us call it the alphabet soup community I don't know if you've heard about that
1: yeah I have (laughs) it it is funny Um, a lot of that has to do with people getting tired of labels at first I had a hard time with it I really did because I am a lesbian there's nothing wrong with being a lesbian and and when you try to remove that and then you try to just use like a generic term for who you are and what you are, it feels like you're almost trying to blend in and not be different. And I understand that there are some people who are asexual and some people who are pansexual, and uh, which, again, is like, well, isn't that bisexuality? I, I don't understand. Uh, but then they throw in all these other reasons. And, and look, if it makes them feel better, About who they are, and it makes them more confident that they can live their authentic self by using a different term. I don't care. I just want them to be happy. I just want them to live their life to their fullest. Maybe one day they'll come around and realize that it's okay to be gay. You know, you don't have to add another term to be accepted uh, by your straight friends or by your family or by whatever. And Some people might actually feel that way, non-binary, gender fluid, all these new terms that are coming up. When I first started talking to people about being gender fluid, I would ask them, I said, so uh, what exactly does that mean? And so they said, well, I don't really associate myself with either gender. And I asked them again, why? And they said, well, because women have certain roles in this country and men have certain roles in this country. And I said, who set those roles? Who decided those roles? And they said, well, I don't know. Somebody did. And I said, well, then you're playing into their hands that those roles are particularly improper and you want to exist outside of that. Whereas I see it as I'm a woman and I can do pretty much almost anything a man can do, sometimes more. So what exactly is it that I'm not supposed to be able to do just because I have a vagina? It's important to me, for me, to be labeled as a lesbian. I want people to know that I'm a lesbian because... A lot of people fought for that. A lot of people fought hard. They got beat and they got imprisoned. I mean, the first man to die in Alcatraz was a gay man. And the only reason why he was put in Alcatraz was because he was considered a sodomite, a homosexual. And he died in Alcatraz. The police were raiding gay bars back in the day and arresting people for being sodomites. Another reason why I have a difficulty being in this particular genre, there was a band that's fairly well known. They've been around for probably 20 years. A couple of years ago, they wrote a song called Sodomite. And they basically just quoted homophobic verses from the Bible. And that song made it to number one on Metal Specialty Radio, on satellite radio. And that offended me in so many ways. Why is it okay to condemn gay people? people will still use faggot. You know, faggot is a bundle of sticks, which they used to burn gay people alive on top of. The joke was, oh, look, there's a couple of faggots. Let's burn them. Why that's acceptable in certain genres of music, why that's okay, when you're you're basically saying that gay people should be burned alive.
0: When we talk about gay people, you know, we talk about the homosexual man and also the homosexual women, the lesbians. What do you think lesbians, the L in the alphabet soup, what do you think the L shares with the T? What, what do these different groups have in common, and why do you think they're in the same
1: protected soup? <clears throat> uh, the group soup. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I think that we have a lot in common because... Uh, One, because of the type of treatment that we receive, I think that that's one reason why we found sort of a togetherness. I think the same way that a lesbian is attracted to another woman, the same way that uh, the T in your group soup, as you refer to, is either is heterosexual and feels more comfortable dressed as a woman, which is very common in the male circles, or if they are attracted to the same sex, but yet tend to dress as the opposite gender. I think that we share that because majority of people get confused and don't understand it, but we're discriminated in the same way. It's basically the same premise. Uh, how we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to wear, uh, what we're supposed to say. You go back to the 50s and Lucille Ball wore trousers on TV and the stir that caused because a woman wore trousers. You know, I mean, who decided that that's not what women should wear? And that, that was sort of, I think, a very feminist move. I don't know much about Lucille Ball, so I don't know if she considered herself a feminist, but she did try to break some gender norms uh, in the way that what was written inside the show. Uh, and, and the same thing goes with the LGBT community and LGBTQ and the LGBTQIA, and, and all the alphabets that you can throw together. I mean, I can look at two people and go, All right, I don't like the way you look, and I don't like the way you look, or I don't like your job, and and I don't like your job, or I don't like your core belief system. I mean, what's next? Congress loves to use slippery slope as a term. What's a slippery slope? Are they going to tell two people who are handicapped that they're not allowed to get married because they're not a traditional marriage? Uh, And what is traditional marriage anyway? I mean, it's actually the court filing. You have to actually go down and get a marriage license. Before it's actually legal and recognized by the state. Even in places where, uh, when it was just states' rights and certain states recognized gay marriage, there were still gay marriages happening in churches, but they weren't going down to city halls. Just because they feel like they have the moral right to tell us what we can do with our lives doesn't mean that it's right. Slavery was legal in this country, slavery was, was popular during the Civil War, 80% of people thought that slavery was the right thing to do. But was it? No, of course not. Not allowing women to have their own last names. We don't have our own last names. If you never marry, then you have your mother's father's last name. If, you, uh, if you're if you heterosexual. If you marry, you will take on your husband's last name. And that goes with, uh, I guess, same-sex couples as well. You'll take on your partner's mother's father's last name because we're not allowed to have ownership of our own bodies, our own identities. And that goes back, way back, when women weren't able to own land, and men were named after the land that they lived on, or their fathers, you know, son of so-and-so, and And that was like the Mick or the Mac in Irish, in Ireland and Scotland. They were son of Johnson, or they were son of John, or whatever. But women were always ladies or maidens without a name. We only got a name if we got married. We've had a long a long fight, thank the gods for the suffragette movement, for helping make this happen where at least we had uh, equal say in our country. And those women were out there at a time when it was okay to beat a woman with, as long as it wasn't wider than their thumb, which is the rule of thumb. That's where it comes from. You could hit her with a stick as long as it wasn't wider than the man's thumb. The Ku Klux Klan used to throw acid in the faces of suffragettes. They are arrested and beaten, but yet they kept coming back, and they kept coming back, and they kept coming back. Uh, we're the largest voting block in this country. Women are. And uh, I think we're seeing a movement happening now, which is wonderful to experience to be alive during this time, to, uh, to see that happening. The largest march on D.C. ever was the Women's March. Uh, we've got more women running for elected office this year than I think we've ever had ever. There was an election that happened recently. The man uh, who wrote the anti-trans bathroom bill, because they didn't want transgender people going into the bathroom they uh, identified with. Well, he lost his election to a trans woman. I think her name's Danica Rome. So times are changing and we're seeing it, but we can't get complacent and we can't stop now. We've been pushing this boulder uphill, and we got to keep going to the next peak. It is
0: interesting that you bring up Mr. Rowam because many people who acknowledge his sex as male are slandered and branded as turfs simply because, you know, human sex is immutable. We can't change sex. So a lot of women who are speaking out against female erasure via the transgender movement, um, where men are claiming to be women and then taking resources designated for women, for female people, um, taking spaces in women's bathrooms. And many men have assaulted women in segregated sex spaces. And so Mr. Rollam is just a great example of the male erasure of women um, in politics. And I want to ask you, have you ever been called a TERF before? Because a lot of women have, and I have. I've never even heard that term before, no. It's it's an acronym. Um, What what does it stand for? Well, let me just say it makes no sense. (laughs) Um, Okay. I, I would just like to preface this word with the fact that the transgender population is comprised of both female and male people. The female transgender people call themselves trans men, and male transgender people call themselves trans women. Correct. And when the word turf is thrown around, it's usually thrown at women, female people, who mm-hmm. acknowledge sex who say trans women are male, and who say trans men are female. So the word, the acronym stands for transgender exterminatory or exclusionary radical feminist. And only one man who I know of has ever been called a turf, and that was Dave Chappelle.
1: <laughs> yeah, he had a rough time when he made that comeback on Netflix. He doesn't seem to be a fan of of transgender people. I when you say transgender
0: trans- people, are you talking about the male or the female people? Because there is a difference.
1: How? Because trans women are are somehow invading women's spaces. I, I would like to, I would like to say that I I don't I I wouldn't call uh, Danica he. Uh, When I was young, I was considered a tomboy. I was made fun of for all of that. But it didn't stop me from climbing trees or playing tackle football in the street with my brothers and uh, other knuckleheads in the neighborhood. My opinion is this, when it comes to um, uh, men who identify as women.
0: Is woman an identity?
1: Oh, that's a good point. Um, I used to have a difficulty understanding why a transgender person wouldn't just be happy being gay, why they needed to dress a certain way. And then I noticed that, well, I've got really short hair and I've got a fade, and I traditionally dress more masculine than most women. Uh, I don't consider myself a trans man, but I do defy gender roles in that particular way. I just don't see myself that way. I think that the transgender community is so small that it doesn't pose a threat to women advancing in this country. Uh, What I do see is when people celebrate a victory like the trans woman in Virginia had, I see that as we are getting closer to that idea again of America, that all are created equal. What do I care if someone decides that in their mind they honestly feel like they were born in the wrong body, and that could be just the fact that their bodies generate more estrogen than and testosterone but I've also run into men who are straight they have wives but they just feel powerful dressed as a woman uh, or dressing as uh, what we consider what a woman should dress like and this is when it gets really convoluted right because what is a woman supposed to dress like you know long hair a skirt well in Scotland they wear a kilt where does that end and begin I don't think it's my place to say it's really hard for transgender people to get jobs in this country and still live their what they believe is their authentic self. I'm more concerned about equality for all people and making sure that the people that are against equality for all people become fossils very fast.
0: Most of our listeners are lesbians and radical feminists, so Understood. would you like to say anything to them?
1: Well, I'm very honored to have the opportunity for you guys to listen to me rant and ramble, and we probably won't agree on certain things. Again, I identify as lesbian. I identify as a feminist. Uh, As far as the trans situation, which I think is something that is a really sore subject with a lot of people, uh, with a lot of lesbians and a lot of feminists, to understand that it's not my place to tell someone how to live their lives just the way it's not someone else's place to tell me how to live my life. I used to have a much different opinion about trans folk, just because I didn't understand, well, what's wrong with being a lesbian and just being you. And that's something that they struggle with for a long, long time. I mean, you have children who are going to school, say young boys who just feel more comfortable with the the sort of i guess the uh, the tenets of being a woman, whatever that is, paint your fingernails, is that feminine? Is that a woman to paint your fingernails um, and why is that? Who decided that? or if he's more comfortable wearing heels, I'm more comfortable wearing high top chucks, you know, which could be considered more masculine than you know what a lot of people that are not feminists would uh, associate with me. Or associate with a woman. You're supposed to, you know, have long hair and you wear makeup and you're supposed to act a certain way. I understand there are difficulties with certain trans folk who get extremely defensive. I had an altercation once where a trans uh, a trans woman told me that she was more woman than I was. Just because she was dressed in like a like a dress with sequin dress it was at an event at a gala and I'm not exactly even sure why this came up and then uh, I was like well I guess if we're going by gender norms you are because you've got a weave and you're wearing false eyelashes and you're wearing a dress and uh, three inch heels and I'm wearing jeans and sneakers so if we're going by gender norms then sure you're more of a woman than I am If that's the way we're going to do it Uh, but uh, I, I don't think any trans man or trans woman is setting out diabolically to steal something from women um, or from men, that they identify more uh, as a woman or identify more as a man. Uh, I don't see that as taking away anything from us. Although, I do find that being a woman is very precious. I, I believe it is. I believe it's very important. I believe that we are in some regards, the stronger sex. And uh, I just think that it's important that we try to be as understanding as possible with the realization that not every lesbian is a great person. Not every gay man is is a great person. Not every trans person is a great person. I'm sure many people, many of your listeners might disagree with me, and that's okay. No disrespect. That's just my opinion. Well, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And thanks for the, you know, I I do a lot of these and I don't often get questions where I have to think. It's usually just canned answers. What's it like being a woman in a metal band? Well, what do you think it's like? You know, it's like being a woman in any occupation. You know, so this was a, a really nice interview and really great discourse with you. I appreciate it very much.
0: Anytime. And I mean that. Anytime.
1: Yeah. I'm open. Let me know. Mm-hmm.
0: You just heard an extended interview with Otep Shamaya, leader of the metal band Otep, the very first female-fronted band to headline Ozfest, a touring heavy metal festival. Otep uses her music to bring awareness to injustice. She quite literally speaks up for women, immigrants, and animals. Her genre, like many others, is dominated by men whose misogynist products are created with no one but other males in mind. Otep breaks that barrier. I had so much fun speaking with her about her experiences in the music industry as an out-and-proud lesbian. Her new album, Cult 45, is available now. This is Julia Beck. Thank you for listening.